You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Heads up, this episode is a follow-up on our last one, It's All Lie, so you should probably listen to that before continuing here. As a refresher, Jean Hardouin was a celebrated French librarian around the turn of the 18th century. He translated and annotated Pliny the Elder, wrote up a complete history of Catholic councils, and generally contributed to the font of knowledge of the so-called Republic of Letters. Then in 1690, while reading Augustine's Confessions, he began to suspect something was amiss. By 1693, he had concluded that the entirety of written history up until the 1300s had been forged by a secretive cabal of Benedictine monks he termed the Atheist Sect. As the years ticked by, his theory grew and grew, even as his peers continually beat back his accusations and assertions. The life of Jean Hardouin was on track for a grand climax. Maybe he'd find some inexplicable piece of evidence that knocked his opponents for a loop. Maybe he'd descend fully into madness. Maybe he'd be cast out and ostracized from academic society. Or maybe he'd realize he'd been wrong all along and slump into regretful prostration. But none of those things happened. Instead, Arduin simply kept on. He maintained his position at the Lycée Louis-le-Grand until the end, and continued on creating both his lucid and astute historical criticism and his totally bonkers historical criticism. He wasn't denounced or destroyed, nor did he triumph. He just kept going. Until the year 1729, when two things were published, Arduin's grand unified theory of universal forgery and his epitaph, which read, In expectation of the judgment, here lies the most paradoxical of men, by nature a Frenchman, by religion a Roman, the portent of the literary world, the worshipper and the destroyer of venerable antiquity, fevered with learning, he worked to publish dreams and thoughts unheard of. He was pious in his skepticism, a child in credulity, a youth in rashness, an old man in madness. Is it mere coincidence that he died the same year he finally printed his full theory? I mean, probably. Yeah, of course it was. What am I talking about? But I don't know how he died specifically, and where would we be if we didn't take that small gap of information and try to cram a gigantic conspiracy into it? Not in this story is where. 
In the spirit of things, let's ignore that he was 83 years old and living at a time when potable water was a luxury item, and instead imagine his death was a suspicious one, caused by that atheist sect he was exposing to quash the publication and spread of his last big expose, entitled The Prolegomena of Jean Arduin. If that had been the real plan, it couldn't have worked much better. The church did, in fact, lift a few fingers to help suppress the prolegomena, but they needn't have bothered. By then, anyone who might have read it was already overly familiar with and not much impressed by the theories of Jean Arduin. For centuries after the prolegomena did make it out into the public, the public roundly ignored it. It didn't even get translated into English until 1909, when Australian publisher-slash-world's-then-largest bookstore Angus and Robertson produced a small run of the prolegomena of Jean Arduin as translated by Edwin Johnson. It's a tough book to track down, but luckily for me, the public digital research library Half the Trust has a digitized copy available. I zoomed and flitted through that PDF in the writing of It's All a Lie, and only towards the end of the writing process did I head back towards the book's preface. Now, The Prolegomena is, as you'd anticipate, a weird book. Its central thesis, after all, is that all books dating before the 1400s are counterfeits constructed by thousands of Benedictine monks working in secret for an evil emperor to create a fake world history in order to slowly dissolve mankind's faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Inside the Prolegomena, Harduin makes maybe his single most far-fetched and bizarre assertion, which is really saying something. Harduin believed, if you remember, that the Bible was originally written in Latin, and only later were fake, older versions made by the atheist sect in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, which he also believed to have been made up by the sect. There was a problem with this theory. Alright, a few problems, but one that really bothered Arduin. Why did the Byzantine Empire, then, speak and write in Greek? In the Prolegomena, he squares the circle by arguing that they didn't. The Byzantines originally spoke and wrote in Latin, but were tricked by the Benedictines into switching over to Greek and then destroying every trace of their proper Latin history, replacing all the Latin writings with phony Greek ones, and somehow covering this all up so that no one in all of Byzantium or elsewhere ever mentioned any of this. Pretty absurd, right? Well, what I found in the preface of the English translation of the Prolegomena was even weirder. And it got me rolling down a rabbit hole so brambly, I had to share it with you. So, let's get to it. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Don't Know Much About History. We've got way too much ground to cover for me to read you the whole of Edwin Johnson's preface, which I would otherwise love to do, since I could then engender in you the feeling of complacency that came over me as I scanned its e-pages. When I found Johnson's English translation of Arduin's Prolegomena, it didn't occur to me to ask why he had translated it. The book was itself a good enough reason, I suppose I figured. It's a part of history, a window into a fascinating time when historians were first debating in seriousness how to do history. If I had the ability and time to translate Arduin's Prolegomena, I would have happily done so. 
At the start of the translation, there are several introductions and forewords that all seem to think the same as me. Arduin was a fascinating figure from whom much could be learned. His pathological skepticism was both a telling people into the time and place he lived in and a parable about what happens when good questions get too recursive. When you hit epistemological bedrock and just keep digging. The Prolegomena's translator, Edwin Johnson, seems in his preface to see this too. He begins with a brief explanation of Arduin's life, works, and peculiar beliefs. He then gives his On the Other Hand, which is approximately the same one that I left you with at the end of our last episode, that indeed, plenty of medieval, Latin, Greek, and early Christian writings have, in fact, proven themselves to be forgeries, and more still live forever in a place of historical uncertainty. But, obviously, to conclude from this that somehow all of written history was counterfeited by a secret brigade of atheist monks is totally ridiculous. As Johnson says in his preface, We may dismiss the charge of forgery. There is a simpler, and I think, a satisfactory explanation. Error in our chronology. The tale of a chronology system invented by Dionysus Exegus 600 years after the beginning of the era and 800 years before the system came into use is merely a tale. Our chronological chart was not constructed before it was required, and some little Dennis made it towards the end of the 15th century. Elsewhere, I have drawn attention to a few anomalies of the system, so I will only note here that, assuming for the moment the era of Christ to be correct, the period between the age of Alexander the Great and ours is roughly 2,300 years. We have here, so to speak, a tape measure of 23 inches, too long by 7 or 8 inches, for between the age of Alexander and our own, we have no authentic historical material in Europe for more than 14 or 15 centuries there is a hiatus of more than 700 years. When we apply our 23-inch tape measure to the histories of Egypt, Persia, and India, wherein the conquests of Alexander also mark a well-known period, we find the same result. It is too long, and there are parallel and corresponding gulfs of darkness, more than 700 years in length, which cannot be bridged by a scrap of authentic historical material. Similar fabulous periods occur in British and Scandinavian history, so-called Welsh literature, goes back only to the 12th century. Looking backward, we find no authentic papal records older than the 12th century. I've got to air quote that 12th the way he writes it. That is also the time of the commencement of cathedral building in Italy, France, and England. On the continent, ecclesiastical buildings succeed the Roman temples without a break. In Rome, the Eternal City, the historians Gregorvius, Freeman, and Bryce see no monuments to mark an intermediate age between the days of the Caesar and the later days of the Pontiffs. Mr. Bryce asks, where is the Rome of the Middle Ages? A question to which he replies, there is no answer. There appears to the present writer to be no other satisfactory explanation for the errors of antedating and charges of forgery than this of chronological blundering. There was invention of heresies and heresarchs and councils in ecclesiastical history. Literary works by Augustines, Lactani, Terulians, Isubii, Isidorians, Procopi, besides literature of controversy and debate in great abundance. The dating must be attributed to the chronologers who, not much more than 400 years ago, estimated and approximately fixed the date of creation as only so many generations or 4,000 years before Christ, and gave us much too liberal an allowance of 1,500 years after Christ. To work out this suggestion, 
If we assume that little Dennis put the clock on 750 or say 753 years, and we deduct the time from our Christian chronology, we are only in AD 1156, which, still upon assumption, corresponds with the year of Rome 1909. Adopting this reckoning, the dates of the last 900 or 1000 years would remain as at present, though not as AD, but as AUC. Wait, what? thought I. I assumed I was in good hands, that me and Mr. Johnson were on the same page, so to speak, about the value of publishing Jean Arduin's radical historical conspiracy theory. But this dude's talking about something else altogether. Naturally, I had to find out more about this Edwin Johnson fellow, and I started right there in his translation of the Proglamena. Opposite the title page sits the usual page that hawks the author's other books. In this case, works by Edwin Johnson. There's Antiqua Mater, an examination of supposed references to Christianity in the writings of Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, and Suetonius. Huh, okay, it's a little weird. Supposed references to Christianity? But hey, you know, I'm ride or die with Josephus didn't write about Jesus, so I can't roll my eyes too hard. There are legitimate historians who question Pliny and the rest, too. I think they're wrong, and so do most people, but they do exist. Next is the rise of Christendom which is described as an attempt to trace Christianity, quote, backwards to the mosque. I don't even know what that means, so I guess I can't get too suspicious of it. But it's the Pauline epistles restudied and explained that made my eyes bulge. The description reads, These writings, in form and character, Johnson shows, originated in the revival and the Lutheran movements. Now, wait just a second. For anybody who didn't spend their first 17 years in Sunday school, the Pauline epistles referred to the 13 books in the New Testament of the Bible, which were written as letters by the Apostle Paul to various early Christian churches and church fathers. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when this Edwin Johnson fellow was writing, scholars began to question the authorship of six of the epistles. Today, most scholars believe that the so-called pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, as well as Titus, were most likely written by someone or someones else. Paul's letter to the Ephesians was likely written neither by Paul nor to the Ephesians, while whether 2nd Thessalonians or Colossians are genuine Pauline documents or not is like, uh, flip a coin, why don't you? But even those books which were probably not written by Paul were still almost certainly written by no later than, say, 150 AD. Edwin Johnson says they were written, all of them, around the Lutheran Reformation. For anybody who didn't spend their first 17 years in Lutheran Sunday school, Luther posted his sticky notes in 1517 AD. When I was researching and writing about Jean Arduin, I realized that his story lacked a satisfying conclusion. But by the end, I noticed that it was lacking a conclusion entirely because Jean Arduin's story never ended in the first place. I started turning over stones and quickly discovered that a good number of my sources on Arduin were actually believers in him. Or, if not in him, then in some adjacent pathological skepticism. Arduin's ideas may not have been very popular in 1729, but they've had plenty of time to stick to the ribs of people since then. And I'm going to tell you about a few of them. Starting, naturally, with Edwin Johnson. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Edwin A. Johnson was the son of a Congregationalist minister in the county of Hampshire in the south of England. Born in 1842, he was raised for the ministry. When he was 17, he was sent off to New College London, where he got his master's in classics. He spent his post-college years following in his father's footsteps, ministering to small Congregationalist churches around the countryside. Much like Jean Arduin, he also published some truly prodigious work, including a fully edited and annotated translation of Erasmus with introduction. In 1879, Johnson left the clergy and returned to New College London as professor of classical lit, where he focused on Greek myths, Greek philosophy, and Greek ecclesiastical history. A year before Johnson re-entered academia, a Dutch historian named Allard Pearson had published a paper arguing that Galatians wasn't written by Paul. Two years later, Pearson's chief critic, Abraham Dirk Lohman, conceded the point and joined him in denying all Pauline authorship. Over the next few decades, a number of other Dutch scholars fell in line with them, forming a group Lohman called the Dutch Radicals. The Dutch Radicals posited that Paul had written none of the epistles, and many of them went so far as to say that there was no historical Jesus. Throughout Holland, the Dutch Radicals were the topic of much debate and opprobrium. Outside of Holland, they were mostly ignored, but not by Edwin Johnson. He read the Dutch Radicals with great relish. He published Antiqua Matter in 1887, which his Dutch counterparts praised as just about the only support they'd found outside of their country. Let me say that I am having a very difficult time avoiding the gravitational pull of the ecclesiastical stances of Johnson and the Dutch Radicals. I would love to talk about their ideas of Christian history for hours because they're chewy, complicated, interesting, and ultimately, uh, well, probably quite wrong. Yet they're not without some sort of merit or deserving of a degree of consideration. In Antiqua Matter, for instance, Johnson says that outside of the Gospels and the Epistles, there is virtually no historical evidence for the historical Jesus. That is a huge exaggeration, and Johnson has to bend over backwards to make it work. Like I said last episode, I am a firm believer that the Testimonium Flavanium was not written by Josephus. The Testimonium describes Jesus as the Christ and says he was a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. It details the resurrection and glancingly refers to other miracles performed. It is, I think, obviously written by a believer, a Christian from a period pretty far after Josephus. But later in Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, there is a far less spectacular and therefore more credible reference to Jesus. In Book 20, Josephus describes the stoning of James the Just. In the New Testament, James is referred to as the brother of Jesus, and that is how Josephus talks about him too. Festus was now dead, and Albinus was but upon the road, so he assembled the Sandarin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others, and when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. There is very little reason to doubt the authenticity of this passage. So Johnson? He ignores it. The Roman historian Tacitus also mentions Jesus when explaining how the Emperor Nero stoked prejudice by blaming Christians for the great fire of Rome. 
In Antiqua Matter, Johnson argues that this passage could have been referring to any number of Messianic Jewish cults living in Rome at the time, which is a decent enough argument. There were a lot of Messianic Jewish cults in Rome at the time, but Tacitus specifically refers to the Christian Messiah as having been executed under Pontius Pilate, which is a lot harder to wiggle out of. Johnson thinks that this passage, too, is phony. To him, it reads too much like the Apostles' Creed, and so he believes it was inserted into Tacitus just as the testimonium was into Josephus. Not a terrible hypothesis. Just like with Josephus, we don't actually have a direct provenance of Tacitus back to his original writing, so there's plenty of opportunity for people to have futzed with it. But there's a big difference between the testimonium and Tacitus' passage about Christ and Pilate. In the testimonium, Jesus is described in extremely Christian terms. He was a miracle worker, a wise man who died and was resurrected. It sticks out like a sore thumb. If Tacitus' passage was forged, it would be a much more clever forgery. Tacitus doesn't think this Christ was anything special, and he doesn't regard this Christ's followers with any affection or respect. In fact, he kind of reviles them mainly because he seems to have misunderstood the taking of communion to be an act of literal cannibalism, a weird thing for a Christian apologist to have snuck into history. And if you believe, like I do, that Josephus' testimonium is phony, or at least partly phony, then you know that whoever was interpolating Christian history into old texts didn't think it was necessary to adopt a character or cover their tracks. If Tacitus were a Christian forgery, it would have been openly and hilariously sympathetic to Jesus and his followers, like Josephus. Oh, hell, I'm doing it, aren't I? Okay, okay, gotta stay on track. The point I'm trying to make is that Johnson's arguments aren't all totally baseless. He notes, for instance, that most of the early church fathers, including Justin Martyr and St. Paul himself, don't seem to know much, if anything, about the life of Jesus and his disciples. He also notes that the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, disagree on many, if not most, of the details of Jesus' life, works, and death. Those are good and extremely interesting points. Jesus, accepting that there was a Jesus, died around 33 AD, and the first of the Gospels, Mark, probably wasn't written until the fall of the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In that 37-year gap, the only writings we have about Christianity are from Paul, again, accepting that at least some of the epistles were written by Paul. But Paul barely talks about Jesus as if he were a real person at all. He says that Jesus was born to a woman and born under Roman law. He frequently mentions the crucifixion and resurrection, and, well, that's it. He doesn't say a thing about walking on water or healing the sick or resurrecting Lazarus or multiplying fish and bread or any other miracles. It's really strange. And the explanations for why Paul seems to be either unconcerned with or unaware of Jesus' life and works are all, I think, a little wanting. The apologist argument is that there was no need for Paul to talk about this stuff because it's all covered in the Gospels. For that to make sense, Paul would have had to know not only that the Gospels were eventually going to be written, but that they would also eventually be included in a book with his letters. If one believes that the Bible was divinely inspired, that might not sound so far-fetched, but of course, that introduces a whole bunch of other questions, like, if the Bible didn't need five accounts of Jesus' life, then why did it need four? And why do those four disagree so much? To me, the most convincing explanation for the lack of Pauline testimony on the life and works of Christ is that Paul was jealous and controlling. Paul never personally knew or witnessed Jesus in the flesh, and he was living and preaching in a world where people did. People like James the Just, Jesus' brother. So Paul's take on Christianity 
de-emphasized the personal and historical the same way that it de-emphasized Judaism. Paul wasn't a Jew, and Paul didn't walk with Jesus. Therefore, neither thing was important. But I seriously fucking digress. The explanation that falls way on the other side of the scales is the one that Edwin Johnson and the Dutch radicals came to. Why does Paul talk about Jesus as a person so little? Because he wasn't one. There was no Jesus. There are a lot of versions of this idea out there, and while most scholars look down their noses at every last one, there is a bit of a continuum to be mentioned. What can be said with confidence about the historical Jesus is that John the Baptist baptized a guy who became some sort of apocalyptic Jewish cult leader and who was executed under Pontius Pilate. Some skeptics just point out that there's a lot of room within those details for things to muddy. Like, are we sure that the guy who got baptized is the same one who got crucified? Isn't it possible that Jesus is an amalgam of several near-contemporaneous Jewish cult leaders? That, to me, doesn't seem so implausible. A rung up the incredulous ladder are those who point out things about the crucifixion as described in the Gospels as suspicious. The Jewish council convened to talk about punishing Jesus during Passover? Pontius Pilate didn't want to crucify Jesus of Nazareth, but his hand was forced by the rabble who demanded he spare the murderer Jesus Barabbas instead? Why would the Roman prefect feel he had to listen to them? From these questions, the group concludes that there was no crucifixion at all. This is some real straw man stuff, though. Even if the council never met, or met at a different time, or if Pilate never washed his hands, you can still have the crucifixion. And then there's the third group, who consider Jesus to have been purely mythical, and descended from other mythological figures. They see the Christ story as just another take on Joseph Campbell's monomyth, and conclude that it evolved directly from the cults of Mithras, or Saturnalia, or Simon Magus, or Dionysus, or any great number of other Roman or Gnostic churches. Our guy, Edwin Johnson, belonged solidly to this group. Hey, I got back on topic, look at me! Like Jean Arduin before him, Edwin Johnson starts with some real questions and concerns, like Paul and Justin Martyr, and then takes a flying fucking leap into a pool full of nuts. Johnson said that the Christian church didn't descend from Jesus, who never existed, or Paul, who never existed, but rather from a hitherto unknown Jewish diaspora movement he named Haggai, which is a word Paul uses to describe his fellow believers in the epistles, which, again, Johnson says are fakes. Haggai translates roughly to the saints, or the holy ones, but to Johnson, it meant a school of Judaism that focused on spiritualism instead of the more legalistic Judaism that pervaded the era. The Haggai fused with the Gnostics and invented Jesus Christ from out of the myth of Dionysus. They then called themselves, or were called by other, Crestoi, or good people, which the Romans then misunderstood to be Christians. These Christians arose properly in the 3rd century AD, which is when they concocted the works of Jesus and the Acts of the Apostles. If the Dutch were radicals, Johnson was much more so. Radical to the max, totally tubular, a cowabunga radical. But he wasn't content with just one iconoclastic thesis. He eventually concluded, as we've already mentioned, that the epistles of Paul were written by Protestants in the 16th century, and, like Arduin, that there was a secret society, at least partly composed of Benedictines, who were responsible for the creation of, quote, cunningly devised fables, which were passed off as history. He was, as you can certainly tell by now, an admirer of Arduin. But he didn't cotton to all of Arduin's ideas. 
He didn't believe that all of medieval and Middle Age history was forged. Rather, he believed it was invented. According to Johnson, all of that time never happened. When the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century, things just went immediately into the early Renaissance. The 750-odd years that we think of as having taken place between those two things didn't. They were either a mistake or a deception. This is, I think it's fair to say, an even wilder idea than his whacked-out Christian history. And yet, Johnson is not the only person to have reached a similar conclusion. In fact, there are a lot of people out there who believe something similar, even today. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutical matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, relationship, traumas, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their own mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. You're the hiring expert for your company, and what you really need is help making your shortlist of qualified candidates. You need a hiring partner who helps make your life easier. You need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview, all on Indeed. Get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications, and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connection with and hiring the right talent fast and easy. Tools like Indeed Instant Match give you quality candidates whose resume on Indeed fit your job description immediately, and Indeed skills tests that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skills test or add your own. Then add your must-have requirements so you only pay for applications that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash the constant. Get a $75 credit at indeed.com slash the constant. That's indeed.com dot com slash the constant one word offer valid through june 30th terms and conditions apply want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You've probably never heard of them, but they're out there. They have as many names as they have beliefs, or maybe even more. But the best blanket term I've found is the one I'll use for the rest of this story. They are the Chronology Truthers. Putting together a comprehensive history of these comprehensive history deniers is, as you might suspect, difficult. And since I failed to curb my impulse to talk about biblical historicity, I don't have time to talk about all of the figures of this movement in detail. I wouldn't feel too slighted, though, because after a while, the chronology truthers begin to blend together and repeat themselves, and eventually, the novelty wears fully off. I think we might as well call Jean Ardouin the founder of the chronology truthers, even though there are several ways in which that's an arguable designation. For one, Ardouin himself would probably not recognize many of the exponents of his arguments. He was a devoutly Catholic thinker whose suspicions were largely fostered by his religious beliefs, so he wouldn't have been too fond of someone like Johnson saying Jesus and St. Paul never existed. Many of the truthers themselves seem to like to go back further than Arduin, all the way to Jean de Lenoy, who died in 1678. Lenoy is called Le Denicheur des Saints, the Denicheur part translating to English as finder or scout. He was a rigorous and skeptical historian who scrupulously and fastidiously challenged the official myths of many saints. I don't think it's fair to give Lenoy to the truthers because while he shared their sense of historical skepticism, he lacked their most important quality. That quality reads too much like a conclusion, so let us earmark it and save it for the end. Nicolas Antoine Boulanger was born in 1729, seven years before Jean Ardouin's death. The Republic of Letters was at that time coming to something of an end itself, like a cicada shedding its skin. It was growing, metamorphosizing, into a grander and more flexible version of itself. The Age of Enlightenment. As Arduin represented an extreme take on his moment, Boulanger did for his. He was born into obscurity, so much so that we don't even know his mother's name. His father, we know, was a paper seller in Paris. And that's the only biographical ingredient available to us until he was accepted into the Collège de Beauvais, where he studied mathematics and architecture. He was physically frail and mentally unremarkable, at least so far as his instructors were concerned. But Nicolas Anton Boulanger had a secret behind his reserved and quiet exterior. In the foreground, he was an engineer. When he finished school, the War of Austrian Succession was raging, and Boulanger was put in charge of earthworks at the Siege of Breiburg. After proving himself an able engineer in wartime, he joined the French Corps of Engineers in peace, building one and a half bridges before his health finally failed him. Whatever the sickness was, it sounds absolutely miserable, quickly spreading across his body, head, into his eyes, stomach, and bowels, before finally he died at the age of 36. 
And that is when the other side of Nicolas Antoine Boulanger came out. Unbeknownst to anyone, he'd been writing obsessively in secret for his entire adult life. He was determined, in spite of his supposed mediocrity, to learn everything there was to learn, and he had gotten a good deal of the way there. In addition to math, architecture, and engineering, he'd taken on seven languages, philosophy, natural science, classic literature, and history. He'd done this all in secret, with his writings only meant to be discovered posthumously, because he feared that if he let himself be at all concerned with the opinions and responses of others, he would flinch from the unvarnished pursuit of truth. The truths that he came to, uh, shall we say, varied in quality. The conclusion we're concerned with here is what Boulanger had to say about history. It wasn't all a forgery like Arduin thought, but it was all wrong. The only event of which he could be sure was what he called the deluge, as in the Great Flood. Whether the deluge was actually a flood or not, Boulanger couldn't say. All he knew was that sometime in the past, a great cataclysm had decimated the earth. Before it, nothing could be known, and after it, all human thought was colored by the great subliminal fear that the cataclysm would return. All history and religion and study was in response to a great trembling within the human heart that it could not itself see or understand. But Boulanger knew. It was the deluge, rumbling back around again. Thirty years later, Manuel Lacunza picked up Boulanger's ball. Lacunza was a Jesuit at a very bad time for it. The Jesuits were looked upon with suspicion because of their international political clout and because of their tiffs with the Jansenists. Who remembers the Jansenists? In 1759, the whole order was expelled from Portugal. Five years later, France followed suit. Then the two Sicilies, Malta, Parma, and the entire Spanish Empire, including Chile, where Manuel Lacunza lived. He fled, along with most of his peers, to Bologna, where the Jesuits were expected to be fine and maybe would have been, except that the political pressure of the entirety of Western Europe caused Pope Clement XIV to disband the Jesuits and excommunicate anyone who continued in their name. Manuel Lacunza didn't take it well. That's not fair. Maybe he took it very well. That's a judgment call. But whether well or unwell, he had an extreme response. He lived in near-total ascetic isolation and began developing his theory, which was a lot. But briefly, the world never ends and never begins. Instead, it is visited by periodic calamities, caused by a sort of cycle of messianic and satanic reigns, the ends of which are marked by fire and destruction. Most of this is related to biblical prophecy, particularly the Revelation, but Lacunza put it into pseudoscientific form. The punishments of God, the second coming of Jesus, the reign of the Antichrist, the coming of the dragon, all of these things, as well as the Great Flood, were manifested by shifts in the Earth's rotational axis and or its poles. And if you're wondering what any of this has to do with forging or inventing history, honestly, I'm with you. But hopefully by the end, it'll at least partly add up. Next up is Polydor Hochart, a Bordeaux shipbuilder and high school teacher who in 1890 published a thoroughly ignored treatise entitled The Authenticity of the Annals and the Histories of Tacitus, in which he concluded there was none. Like Arduin before him, Hochart said that Tacitus was a forgery concocted to sell the hoax that Christians had been persecuted under Nero. This was accomplished by Paggio Bracchioli, a 15th century Italian scholar who rediscovered a number of classical works by Lucretius, Vitruvius, Cicero, etc. 
Hochart doesn't seem to have an opinion about the authenticity of all that stuff. He just knew that Poggio forged Tacitus, whose writings he had not discovered. This was done, Hochart figured, in order to engender historical sympathy for Christians, whose natural enemy was apparently 15th century Italians. Hochart lived alongside the Dutch radicals and our buddy Edwin Johnson, contributing to the stew of uncertainty that coalesced into globules of historical conspiracy theories throughout the 20th century. Inspired by Johnson and Hochart, the greatest catalyzing figure for this movement was Nikolaj Morisov. Morisov was the bastard child of a serf woman and the son of the landowner for whom she worked. He was born in a small West Russian town in 1854, and man alive, he was just bound to be a revolutionary, wasn't he? By 1879, he had rejected peaceful protest and appeals to the people. He left Russia for London in 1880, where he wrote The Terrorist Struggle, a pamphlet advocating for decentralized, small-scale, loosely connected terrorist bands to rise up and destabilize society through violence. When he came back to Russia in order to disseminate the pamphlet, he was, surprise, surprise, arrested. He spent the next 23 years imprisoned in Siberia. This period of frozen suffering seems to have largely dissolved his political ideals, and when he was finally freed in 1903, he came out instead interested in selling the scientific and historical ideas he had concocted in jail. A full list of those ideas would finally sidetrack us onto tracks so side that the train would completely invert. Not all of them were bad, either. He conjectured about the existence of inert elements, which had already been discovered a few years earlier, but unbeknownst to him. Most of his ideas, though, were wrong. And that's especially true of his ideas on history. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's triviality. Morisov came to very similar conclusions as Arduin, Johnson, and Hochart. He definitely read the latter two and probably the former as well. But Morisov added a patina of objective science to the lathered conspiracy-mongering of his predecessors. Arduin had concluded that most of recorded history was fraudulent because there weren't enough commemorative coins for it. Johnson believed that the Middle Ages were entirely invented because Europeans had built a bunch of buildings in a Roman revival style in the 14th century, and he figured that those buildings must have actually been built directly after the real Roman ones. But Morisov's confirmations of those theories didn't come from documents or coins or architecture or other fallible historical footprints. They came from the stars. Even well before Arduin came on the scene, historians understood the importance of the cosmos to fixing events in time. Every once in a while, a comet appears in the sky, or a nova, or a constellation moves into an especially notable position. And when things like that happen, people tend to write about them. And through those writings, 
we can start working out when things happened. For instance, when people wrote about the Battle of Hastings, they talked about how William the Conqueror had come to England following an omen in the sky. That same omen is mentioned as coinciding with the death of Emperor Constantine Ducas of Byzantium. Ipso facto, Ducas died in the same year as the battle. But we can take it a step further than that and analyze whether the object seen in the sky is a known one. And indeed it is. It was Halley's Comet, which would have appeared in the sky in April of 1066. Easy as that. This process is referred to by historians as synchronization, and there is a lot of synchronizing to be done. Eusebius had done a lot of the work in somewhere around 325 AD. In his Chronicon, he used astronomical, historical, and clerical dating to synchronize the histories of Chaldea, Assyria, Medea, Lydia, Persia, Israel, Greece, Peloponnesia, Asia, and Rome, all the way back to 5201 BC, which was the year he believed God had created Adam, though he wisely hedged his bets about saying whether this was the date of creation itself. Eusebius was far from inerrant, as you might have already noticed. This is the guy, after all, who's most likely responsible for the doctored passage in Josephus. And Eusebius's Chronicon didn't survive in its entirety, which means other people, long after him, had to fill in the gaps and work out the problems. So you're bound to find some shaky stuff, if not some downright flubs. But Morisov was like the anti-Eusebius. He looked only for flubs, only for problems. He sought to desynchronize history. Through a logic as serpentine as its source material, he used the Zodiac to date the book of Revelation to 395 AD. He believed that John had written it during the reign of Roman Emperor Domitian, but classical history understood that Domitian had ruled between 81 and 96 AD. Naturally, Morisov concludes that the 300 years between those dates never happened. By this process, he managed to chip away century upon century, and then he passed the torch to the next weirdo in our journey, Anatoly Fomenko. And this is where the ground gets a little shaky, because Anatoly Fomenko is unlike every other character we've so far examined in one important respect. He's still alive. See, the thing about the chronology truthers is that they are out there today, right now, as we speak. They might even be listening. In which case, I want to say, hi, Stephen. I'm definitely not going to talk about all of the current thought leaders in this movement. Sorry, Stephen. But there are a few modern figures that deserve discussion, and first among them is Anatoly Fomenko, the most franchising of all the chronology truthers. Fomenko has his fingers in a lot of pies. He's a painter and a sci-fi writer, and most impressively from what I can tell, he's a pretty accomplished mathematician and full professor thereof at Moscow State University. He has contributed a number of theories in topography that are far too technical for me to comment upon, but they seem above board and worthy of respect. Yet all of his actual respectable bona fides are mostly used in a vain attempt to buttress his chronological views, as if a brilliant mathematician couldn't also be a terrible historian. Trust me, one can, and is. Fomenko sells a distressingly thick series of books and videos on his conspiracy theory, which he calls New Chronology. Originally, he had tried to sell his ideas to fellow academics, but unfortunately, his fellow academics failed to bite, and he decided instead to sell directly to the public, like the Amway of historical revisionism. The main planks of Fomenko's new chronology are as follows. 1. There is no historical record before 800 AD. Anything that appears to come before this time is either fake or misdated. 2. 
Between 800 and 1000 AD, there is almost no writing, but at least those years do seem to have happened, more or less. 3. Almost every known historical event from prehistory onward actually occurred between 1000 and 1500 AD. This includes the life of Jesus Christ, who was born in Crimea in 1152 and died in Istanbul in 1185. 4. A lot of the misapprehensions of accepted history can be chalked up to an organized effort between Benedictines, those blasted Benedictines again, and the Holy Roman Empire, who conspired to create a fake history in order to obscure the power of history's true victors, whom Fomenko calls the Russian Horde. Until those dang Benedictines came along and ruined everything, Russia had ruled the world, and most of the important events in human history had centered on it. Convenient. 5. But there is another reason for the confusion. According to Fomenko, historians used to have a habit of writing about one event several times, changing a few details, and plopping different years on them. So, for instance, modern scholars might think that King Solomon ruled Israel around 970 BC, but since there is no history before 800 AD, we can safely say that's wrong and that references to Solomon are actually muddled descriptions of the rule of Solomon the Magnificent, Sultan of the Ottoman Empire between 1520 and 1566 AD. A little confusing, since plenty of people wrote about Solomon before 1520 AD, but Fomenko has a simple explanation for that. No, they didn't. Problem solved. Fomenko might have languished away in obscurity like most of his predecessors, but his ideas were supported by the international celebrity chess champion Garry Kasparov. Kasparov single-handedly turned new chronology into a bit of a sensation, and again lent it credibility under the dubious logic that someone who was so good at chess couldn't possibly believe stupid things. See also Bobby Fischer. Whew. I don't know about y'all, but I am fast running out of steam here. I'm looking at this list I've compiled, and there are still at least a dozen people left to talk about, many of whom are still alive and working today. They seem to me, though, to roughly fall into about three camps. There are the people who descend from Nicolas Antoine Boulanger and Manuel Lacunza, who believe that the Earth is visited by periodic catastrophes that destroy humanity time and time again. The two beliefs that tend to ride along with that one are that we can't know anything that was happening before the last catastrophe, usually considered to be the Great Flood, and that the trauma of said flood has led to a sort of global, terrified amnesia that we all live with. What exactly that means is a little spongy. The second camp are those that believe in a vast chronological conspiracy, like Fomenko who perpetrated the conspiracy and why are stunningly variable since generally it's seen as an attempt to create or else destroy Christianity. Likewise, whether the conspiracy was mainly about forging documents like Arduin believed or inserting a long period of fake history into the record like Johnson thought is up for endless debate. The third group is best epitomized by Herbert Illig, author of The Phantom Time Hypothesis. At first glance, the phantom time hypothesis appears to be the least outrageous version of this whole phenomenon. To understand it, we have to look a little bit at the shift from the Julian to the Gregorian calendars, which we talked about a couple of months ago on the Patreon secret feed. We won't go into the fine detail about it now, but if you're interested, well, go to patreon.com slash the constant to support the show. Basically, the Julian calendar was introduced by Julius Caesar in 46 BC because the previous Roman calendar was farcically complicated and terribly imprecise. 
The problem with any attempt at an annual calendar is that the time it takes the Earth to go around the sun is about 365 days plus 5 hours, 48 minutes, and 46 seconds. Over the course of time, that nearly 6 hours a year starts to add up, and soon enough your calendar is drifting until seasons and holidays no longer align where they're supposed to. The Julian and Gregorian calendars both go about trying to fix that problem by having leap years, where an extra day is added to the end of February once in a while. The Julian calendar had an extra day every four years. That put the average length of a Julian year at an even 365 days and six hours. Pretty close, but again, that 12 minutes adds up after a while. By the year 1582, it had added up to somewhere between 10 and 13 days. So, under Pope Gregory XIII, most Catholic nations began moving to the Gregorian calendar, which was in most ways like the Julian, but with a much more complicated set of rules around leap years. Yes, you get a leap year every four. But, if the fourth year is divisible by 100, not a leap year. But, if it's also divisible by 400, it is a leap year, after all. So take the year 2000. It's divisible by 4, so it's a leap year. But it's also divisible by 100, so it's not. But it's also divisible by 400, so it is again. Simple as that. It's weird and contradictory and unintuitive, but the Gregorian calendar has the benefit of having an average year length just a quarter second longer than the actual solar year. What's all this got to do with the price of tea? Well, here's the trick. When countries started switching over to their Gregorian calendar in 1282, they had to add a bunch of days to get things realigned. So folks in Rome went to sleep on Thursday, October 4th, and woke up on Friday the 15th, which sounds disorienting. That difference, 10 days, is what clued our man Herbert Illig in. He did the math and realized that to get the Gregorian calendar back to the place where the Julian one had been in 46 BC should have taken 13 days, not 10. What happened to those extra three days? Why hadn't they been necessary to bring the calendar back into alignment? Illig concluded that they weren't necessary because 300 of the years between 46 BC and 1282 AD hadn't actually occurred. There were 300 years that were invented or else mistakenly added to history. So Illig goes back and starts trying to find which 300 years of history aren't real. He concludes that there's a hole around the time of the Carolingian dynasty through the age of King Charlemagne, approximately 600 to 900 AD. So just 300 years, no biggie. And the logic of the Gregorian calendar gap seems fairly reasonable. There's only one problem. No, <laughs> there are dozens of problems. There might not have been much in the way of reliable European records through the time of Charlemagne, but there's plenty of records from the period in China, Byzantium, Persia, and the Arab world. Hell, Muhammad lived and died during the period of time Illig thinks didn't happen. And there's plenty in the astrological records which show that the 300 years transpired just as alleged. But the big, embarrassing problem with Illig's phantom time hypothesis is that it's formed on a really basic and demonstrable error. If the Gregorian system had been meant to bring the calendar back in line with where it was when the Julian system was adopted in 46 BC, then yeah, it should have taken an adjustment of 13 days. But it wasn't. The Gregorian system was supposed to put things back where they were when the Council of Nicaea established the date of Easter Sunday, and the Council of Nicaea took place under Emperor Constantine in 325 AD. 
there's your 300 years right there, Herbert. Anyway, that's your third group, the more conservative, reasonable revisionists who only think three or four centuries didn't happen. You might think that, all told, these folks don't seem to have a lot in common. Some of them think Christians are the enemy, others that they're the victims. The perpetrators range from early church founders to sects of villainous monks to kings to emperors to historians. Some think that the calendar is just off by a couple hundred years. Others think that a roaming catastrophe destroys the earth every few millennia and wipes our collective memories with trauma. And a lot of folks seem to smash and grab from all of the above and more. They should make strange bedfellows. They should squabble and feud. Yet, from what I can tell, they're all pretty chummy. Which is weird, because any one chronology truther's theory is as different from another's as it is different from the accepted history they're railing against. But merely by questioning that accepted history, they're all made kin. It's a movement less about what they believe is than what they believe isn't. That brings us back to Jean Delanois, that finder of saints who the chronology truthers like to place amongst their ranks. I don't think he belongs there, and my reasoning dovetails quite nicely with why I'm telling you about this subject in the first place. And why is that? The chronology truther movement is painfully obscure. I mean, compared to the flat earthers, they're barely a blip. I think it's possible that this episode is as much press as the whole movement has gotten in the last several years. And this show, guys, this show is very small. Still, why give them that small amount of press? Most of the time when I tackle an idea, it has some impact, some bearing, some import on the world. There are ideas that must be understood in order to rationalize the actions and beliefs of the people who held them. But the sphere of influence of even the most popular of these time confederates is perishingly small. Still, I think there's an allegory to the chronology truthers that's valuable and worth examining, because it's an instinct that we see time and time again, not just in history, but in ourselves. So, back to Jean de Lenoy. Lenoy recognized a problem, that the lives of the saints as recorded in church and popular literature were riddled with holes, incongruities, and errors. So he worked, as best he could, to correct things. That meant toppling a lot of received wisdom, questioning sources, and critically examining the historical record. What it didn't mean was imposing his own baseless nonsense on top of the baseless nonsense he exposed. And that is why Jean de Lenoy doesn't count as a chronology truther. It is indeed right and salutary to be skeptical of what it is we think we know. This show is nearing 100 episodes now, and the nearest thing we can take to a universal moral is a question rather than a statement. What makes you so sure? A sense of surety is the most dangerous enemy of truth. But there are two kinds of false surety. There's the kind that comes from a lack of questioning, from uncritically absorbing whatever information is handed to it. But the other kind is just as insidious. It's an instinct that corrupts skepticism and criticality. You can see it very clearly at play with the chronology truthers. There is, if we look the matter straight on, a whole lot about history that we simply do not know, and a good lot of stuff that we think we know, which we probably don't. Acknowledging and exploring that is great and healthy, and also I've found pretty fun. But the trick is what comes next. The danger is in becoming cynical. Or really, it's the vulnerability that comes along with cynicism. It's when we say, well, who knows, in order to pass on our own agenda. 
who knows what really happened in the European Dark Ages? So how about there was a global conspiracy of Benedictine monks to invent all of Western history in order to cover up that Jesus Christ was born in the 13th century and every 5,000 years the earth blows up? Well, that's pretty absurd and nakedly bad logic, but we see milder versions of the same fallacy all the time. Doctors get things wrong, therefore I believe in homeopathy. Science is mistaken every day, therefore I don't believe in evolution. The universe is full of things we don't understand, so why can't astrology be real? This is the stumbling block of postmodernism. Recognizing that our systems of knowledge aren't compatible with truth is wise. But extrapolating from that that every idea is basically as good as every other idea is worse, even than the things we try to replace. Just because we're not good at determining the truth doesn't mean that we can just decide on whatever truth we prefer instead. Being properly skeptical means being less sure, not just sure in a different direction. Or, to put it another way, the duty of the man who investigates the writings of scientists, if learning the truth is his goal, is to make himself an enemy of all that he reads and, applying his mind to the core and margins of its contents, attack it from every side. He should also suspect himself as he performs his critical examination of it, so that he may avoid falling into either prejudice or leniency. That's the advice Ibn al-Haytham gave us. Why the chronology truthers don't count him among their ranks, I couldn't say. Perhaps because he lived in a century they believe never happened. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, Andreas Dahlbach, Moss Harmon, Stationary Sign, Arthur Benson, and Parr. Twitter is at Constant Podcast. Instagram is at The Constant Podcast. Facebook is Facebook.com slash The Constant Podcast. And our website is ConstantPodcast.com. See how simple is that? Follow us, like us, rate and review us. And if you've got the money, sign up to support the making of this show at Patreon.com slash The Constant to get access to all the bonus episodes in our secret feed. We're a proud part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to Subtitle, a podcast about languages and the people who speak them. The latest episode of Subtitle looks at the history of Braille, including the endlessly fascinating War of the Dots, which, if you ask me, is one of the most fascinating rivalries of all time. Go check it out. This has all been a bit heady and technical, huh? Here is my promise to you. Next time, we'll talk about something fun. How about Death Rays? Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where Dewey defeated Truman and the Tribune can prove it, this has been The Constant. Constant.